Um, we've been journeying through Matthew, and we come uh, to a moment in the journey of Jesus and his disciples that is honestly just so holy of a moment that I, I even struggle to dare speak about it. It's just so special, and to try to uh, get into the details of what happened in this moment um, is is a daunting task, yet the scripture has it here for us uh, for a reason, and it's for our understanding, as Matthew is doing over and over, that Jesus is God in the flesh. And we just saw Jesus take his, remember we saw him take his disciples on a on a wilderness retreat. Those 12 guys were going, and they were going through this intensive training time, and they were learning some big lessons and then, and then a couple of weeks ago, we saw Peter, right? Just like shooting from the hip, like Peter tends to do it. And he, and he proclaims Jesus. Jesus, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And, G, and, and Jesus commends him for that. He got it right. Peter got the answer right. So all of this is, has just happened. Peter proclaims Jesus as the messianic king, the one promised from the line of David which has been talked about right from verse one of this entire book. Jesus was the one to save Israel, to save Israel from all of its oppression and its pain and its suffering. He was there to reverse the curse of sin and give life to mankind. And this grand proclamation of what Jesus was proclaiming, all of those things were wrapped up in there. And then it's followed up by Jesus revealing that he would have to suffer. And that he would have to die in order for all of those things to come to pass. And that that just doesn't fit with the mold of what the expectations were, what the disciples thought that the Messiah would be up to. That's not what they thought. But Jesus, he says, not only would he suffer for the sake of others. This is all a recap, by the way. So if I'm like flying through, this is a recap to get us to where we need to be today. Um, Not only would Jesus suffer for the sake of others, but that his disciples would be called to that same suffering, that same way of sacrificial, loving, suffering in the name of love and justice and mercy on the earth, in the name of Jesus. And that that there's going to be this cost, this great cost to following Jesus. But the reward, the reward as we've looked at is far greater than you could ever imagine. Amen? It's way greater And then we come to our passage today, and we're in chapter 17, and we see this holy moment where Jesus takes these few disciples, Peter, James, and John, and they go up this mountain. So let's read it together. It's going to be on the screen too. Um, This is, believe it or not, as bright as we can get it in here. I know some folks have been saying, well, you asked us to bring our Bibles, and I can't read it. It's going to be on the screen too. But if you can read it, look at your Bibles. It's great. Um, Matthew 17, we're going to read the first 13 verses. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah, talking with him. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. 
But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, Then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come. And they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. This is the word of the Lord this morning to us. So this is an intense moment. Like, this is, this is crazy. These three disciples, they had this privilege of witnessing one of the most powerful events in human history unfold before their eyes. We read this, and sometimes, sometimes we just read right past it, but can you imagine being in that setting? This guy that you ate with, you walked with, you talked with, you probably scraped your knees falling down some gravelly hillsides with. All of a sudden, you go on this hike, and you're at the top of this mountain, and he's transformed before your very eyes, and he's glowing. This is just mind-blowing. Because Jesus grabs these guys. They go on this hike, and they head up a high mountain. And we, it all just seems to happen so quickly. But if you stop and think about it, um, because of what Matthew's relaying, as he does time and time again, it, just, it seems like such a short little account, but they would have had to hike up this mountain. I, I love hiking, and it does not just happen. I've been on a few mountaintops in my day, and hiking up the mountain, it's a long journey. It takes a while to get up there, and it takes a lot of effort to get up there. Now, their mountains aren't like our rocky mountains, but it's still, it's still an effort to get up there. And so they, they head up on this mountain, and and they get to see Jesus really is the Son of God, the Messiah, and the Savior. And this just explodes off the page. It just explodes off the page. And, and so, you know, I've, I've gone a few mountains, and, and there's a journey, there's sweat, there's energy, there's mental fortitude involved, and they're all employed on a walk. But the payoff when you reach the summit is so worth it. I was going to have some pictures. I didn't get time to pull pull any out. I was looking at them last night, and it's just like, even looking at the pictures, pictures don't do it justice, but you, have, who's been to the top of a mountain before? Whether you hiked it or like took a tram up, something. Yeah, okay. When you're at the top, isn't it just there's something special about it, right? You can see, uh, it makes me praise the Lord. I, I love it. I just love it. That feeling of freedom, being on top of the world. Um, on May 29th, 1953, I won't ask who was around then, um, Edmund Hillary of New Zealand and Tenzing Norgay of Nepal were the first to ever reach the, the summit of Mount Everest. Um, maybe some of you remember that. I won't ask. Um, since then, though, thousands have spent tons of money and tons of time training just to get that same mountaintop experience. Uh, but what Peter and James and John encountered on their mountaintop experience was something far more significant, something far more special, and it was a matter of eternal significance. It mattered for eternity. It was a holy moment. And so as we look to the scripture today, I'm not going to unpack too much of this whole 
um, this whole what exactly that would have looked like because I don't even think Matthew knows exactly what it looked like as he explains it. But there's something special that's happening here, and it's actually, as we've looked at many times, a thread that runs through the entirety of Scripture. So we've talked about before, there's certain themes, there's certain things, and if you think of it as a thread, it starts at the beginning in Genesis, and, and there's these certain themes that run all the way through the Scripture, and you see it at different moments, and it has very uh, important spiritual significance to it. And so uh, this is no different. And so today, we're going to look at the thread of mountains in Scripture. And it's actually fascinating when you look at it. So you guys got your thinking caps on a little bit because you're going to have to track. We're going Genesis right through today, okay? And we're going to skip some parts. But um, (laughs) uh, I don't think there's mountains in Leviticus, so uh, we are safe today. Although Leviticus is worth worth a good read. Um, So the kingdom, the kingdom is a thread, right? The kingdom is one that we've been looking at, that God is a king establishing his kingdom on earth, right? We've looked at that. So today the thread is mountains in Scripture throughout the Old and New Testament. Uh, They play a role in in the biggest moments of interaction between God and men. Mountains play a role. Um, Moments on the mountain in Scripture is the place where the presence of God is, where God is encountered. There are places where God's will is revealed to men and women, then there are places where God covenants, partners with, promises things uh, to men. And, and we see it all throughout Scripture, and it all starts from the very beginning. Imagine that. We're going to Genesis again. Isn't this crazy how intricately designed God's plan is? Um, so mountains in Scripture. First, the Garden of Eden. Uh, in Hebrew understanding, the Garden of Eden was on a mountain. And that comes from Ezekiel chapter 28, and right from Genesis uh, 3, we see the fall. And, and so this, this idea was that Adam and Eve, they lived in this place called the Garden of Eden, and it, was, and it was on this mountain. And from there, the streams would go out and water the earth, right? And so from there, the blessing of God, the presence of God was contained in that place with, with Adam and Eve, and from there, it was supposed to go out to the earth. And that was the original plan in Eden. And then upon the sinful fall of man, uh, Adam and Eve, they were cast out of there and they were thrown in the cursed earth to work the hardened land in the valley. And forever, men and women have longed for that return to Eden, to have longed for that return to right relationship with God, to the presence of God, to a restored earth, to healing of, of our brokenness. But from there... Instead of that, we have generations upon generations of of murder and of lies and of destruction and all sorts of evil being done in the hearts and lives of people on the earth. And then we come to the familiar story of Noah, right? And this, in the story of Noah, God tells him to build an ark and God was judging the earth because of sinful human beings. And And he was going to reset the world because of the evil that was done and he was going to wipe out the earth except for Noah and his family. We know that story, right? And so after the floodwaters start to recede, the ark lands on Mount Ararat, so another mountain. And it's from that place of landing on Mount Ararat that God's people would reset and go from that place and bless the earth. And it's from that place that a new covenant was made, 
right? He set the rainbow in the sky that he would never again flood and destroy the whole earth. And so God is covenanting with people in this restart on Mount Ararat. And it doesn't take long from there, though, and we know the story. And man's sinful nature hasn't been dealt with, so we fall into sin again. And the world is full of turmoil and brokenness, and so we get to Abraham. And God chooses Abraham to make Abraham for God a nation that would be set apart for God. And God promises to make Abraham and his wife Sarah a, a nation with many, many descendants, and that this nation would be God's people. This is the nation of Israel, so that the world might know that Yahweh, the one true God, is the one true God, and that, that it would be known by how he deals with that nation. So this covenant happens at Haran and at the hill of Moreh, or Moreh. Uh, God tells Abraham then that they would inherit the land of Canaan. This is where God promises to his people God promised to Abraham, and from that place, God's intention was to bless people. The promise to Abraham was to bless the nations of the world from the hill of Moreh. So we're paying attention here, right? There's a few mountains where God meets with people, and his intent is to to go out from there. Uh, So we fast forward a few generations. Fast forward, and Abraham's family line has grown pretty big, but they find themselves in slavery in Egypt, You know the story of Joseph and and his brothers, and they're in slavery in Egypt, right? And then pretty much like the biggest star in all of history, in Hebrew history, shows up on the scene. What's his name? Moses. Yeah, Moses shows up. And so what, what mountain was a big deal for Moses? Mount Sinai. As they're in the wilderness, as they exit Egypt, they're wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, and they receive from God on Mount Sinai the law. All of the law was given through Moses at Mount Sinai. And wandering there, they were being miraculously provided for by God. They received the law um, as Moses goes up to meet God. And it was a terrifying sight. It was absolutely Terrifying, lightning and fire and smoke and clouds engulfed the mountain. And the presence of God was in that place in a very obvious and a very powerful way. God gave the law through Moses and established a covenant, a promise, a partnership with his people from that mountain that was then meant to go out from that place. And it was meant to invade actually every single part of their lives every part of their lives. I was just reading from my devos this morning uh, in the early chapters of Deuteronomy and, and God gives his law and he says it, it is his hope that they would fear God so that they could know his goodness, so they could know how good he is. That was the plan of God in that covenant. And so then from there, God established among the people from that place of Mount Sinai, he established what's called the tent of meeting, which in, then kind of changed into and grew into the tabernacle, and then it turned into the temple that Solomon built, okay? I know this is a lot of information, but this really matters for where we're going. Stick with it. Trust me. It's all going to come together in just a little bit. Um, So the temple, where God's presence dwelt, right? And in Scripture, we see Mount Zion. When we see Mount Zion in different places, sometimes it's the city of David, but once the temple was built, Mount Zion is described as the Temple Mount. 
is the Temple Mount, that place where God's presence dwells. And so this mountaintop experience in history at, up to this point uh, that we're at now is, is now in the temple, this mountaintop experience where God's presence dwells. It's now contained in this, in this temple, but it's quite restrained. And so it's incredible to note that when Moses met with God, it says this of the after effects of him meeting with God. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Sounds very familiar, doesn't it? Have we read anything like that today? Yes. Say yes. Yes. (laughs) And unless you just lied and you're like, what? What are we talking about? Jesus Jesus was shining, right? On On the Mount of Transfiguration. We're getting back to Matthew 17 here. Now, this is no coincidence. Jesus is transfigured on the mountain, and his face shone as the sun. And his clothes became bright white, and they were terrified. They were terrified. But they weren't in the temple. And they weren't, on a, they weren't in a place, actually, where they were meeting with God in the old way, but he's in a man, in, in Jesus, And then who shows up? Who shows up after they get to the top of this wilderness hike mountain? Moses and Elijah. Moses represented uh, for the Hebrew people all of the law. And Elijah was like the superstar of prophets. And he represented the prophets. What did Jesus come to fulfill? The law and the prophets. Jesus came, he said, remember we've looked at that. He came to fulfill the law and the prophets. And Elijah was the prophet of prophets. And we see this story, you know, that famous story I talk about all the time because I think it's awesome. Um, The story of the famous showdown on Mount Carmel where Elijah is there and he has his, and he's uh, having this showdown with the prophets of Baal and he has this altar and he soaks it with water and God sends fire from heaven so that everyone would know that he is the one true God. And so on that mountain, God showed his presence, and he showed that he is the one true God. The spiritual significance of mountains in the word is a thread that draws us right into the story of Jesus. And it's one that the Hebrew readers would have taken note of. They really would have. Jesus' inauguration of the kingdom of heaven on earth. Remember, he came proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, right? And, And he started that. He started that where? where? Where did that start? When he started teaching that. You remember? Oh, come on. You guys are so quiet today. The Sermon on the Mount. You guys had it. You're just shy. The Sermon on the Mount. Jesus came and proclaimed the kingdom, the good news of the kingdom, the kingdom ways, the kingdom laws. He interpreted the law for us and said what his way is going to be in the new kingdom. And so... Coming out of there, what did he do? He established this new way. He started healing people. He kept proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. He was forgiving sins. Jesus was going out from that mountain and blessing the people of the earth. And so what happened on that mountain didn't stay on that mountain. It went wherever Jesus went. So far in Hebrew history, God's presence was in a place. It was on Mount Sinai. It was in the Temple Mount. It was with Noah on Mount Ararat. God spoke sometimes to Abraham. But, but, now, 
God's presence went wherever Jesus went. It went with him. And so when we read this amazing encounter where the representatives, Moses and Elijah, of the law and the prophets are represented, Jesus is changed into this some otherworldly looking person. And it's hearkening to Moses' meeting with God and, and the disciples, they're terrified. And then Jesus comes and he touches them and he says, rise and have no fear. Rise and have no fear. And, and now all of a sudden, Peter's super strange remark makes total sense. Can you, like, we read it, in, and I'm, I'm there too. Peter basically, like, the most amazing thing you could ever think of happening is happening. And I just think, like, a, kind of a bumbling fool. Oh, okay, um, uh, yeah, Jesus, uh, how about we make some tents? And uh, I'll make one for you and your buddies, and it's going to be really, we'll just kind of camp out here for a while. Uh, I don't think it's as, as silly as we think. In Peter's mind, I actually, I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt. This is just me uh, expounding a little bit uh, for what it's worth. So it's not gospel truth here, but I, I don't think that it's a delusional panic response of Peter here. Um, like, whoa, this is crazy. Uh, I'm panic mode. Uh, build a shelter. That's the first thing that popped in his head. Um, I think he's saying, let's build a tent here. Let's build a tabernacle because every other mountain spot has been a place where God needs to camp out and from there, go. And so let's just stay here. I mean, if you are the Messiah, you're going to need a headquarters and you're going to need to have a place where God's presence stays and dwells. We're on this mountain and I mean, the main guys are here. And so surely from this place, this is like the place where the Messiah headquarters is going to be now. And we're going to take over those Romans and we're going to go from here and make everything better. And then you're going to do your kingly thing, right? I mean, I think that's what Peter was probably thinking. But it seems like it would make sense that way from a Jewish frame of mind. Absolutely. But Jesus was doing things really, really differently. Uh, are you surprised by that? He surprised them this whole book. He does things entirely differently because as amazing as the mountaintop experience was, Jesus says, hey guys, it's time to head back down the mountain. And so they go back down the mountain. And what happens next may um, kind of, many of us separate it because there's a heading here. Mine says, Jesus heals a boy with a demon, but this book didn't have headings when it was written. And so I think that we need to keep reading here uh, today. So if you still have your fingers in Matthew 17, it's not going to be on the slide this time. I'm going to read verses 14 to 20 because they come down the mountain. They come down the mountain and, and we see some amazing things happen. So here we go, verse 14. When they came to the crowd, a man came up to him and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he has seizures and he suffers terribly. For often he falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples and they could not heal him. And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of him. And the boy was healed instantly. Then the disciples came to Jesus and said, why could we not cast it out? He said to them, because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, 
You will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. We're going to mostly look over the whole interaction with the dad and the demonized boy today, uh, and we're going to focus in on the disciples, okay? They've been given authority from Jesus. Do you remember that? They've been get, already been given authority from Jesus to cast out demons, and they had already been doing that. Uh, remember that? So then Jesus doesn't actually hold any punches here. <laughs> um, oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Jesus rebukes his disciples for their little faith. He rebukes them for their little faith. It, sometimes we like to like sit back and, and allow God, well, if God didn't want it to happen, that's not going to happen. Jesus actually said, this didn't happen because of your little faith. He placed the blame squarely on them for the boy not being delivered from the demon. And, and we're going to, side note, don't take that as the full theology on that, okay? We're going to talk next week on the role of faith and God's sovereignty and how they play together and the mystery of that. It's just not today's conversation, okay? Um, so Jesus rebukes the guys. And he says, you have little faith. And then what does he say next? In verse 20, he says, if you have faith like the grain of a mustard seed, this tiny little seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. Who's, here, who's heard this verse before? Ah, yeah, it's on every, you probably got it on a mug somewhere, you got it on a journal somewhere, this is like North America Christianity, like, yes, we want to move mountains, right? That's, uh, it's, we usually use the idea of mountain as a metaphor for struggles in our lives, and there are struggles in our lives, and that's not an entirely counter-biblical idea, but here's a question, where did Jesus and Peter, James, and John just come from? Where did they just come from? I want to answer for that. Where did they just come from? The mountain. They were still in the vicinity of the mountain. So what was he pointing to when he said, you will say to this mountain, move and it will move. Yes, that mountain, that mountain where God's presence is, that mountain where Peter, James, and John just saw Jesus transformed into some crazy, otherworldly, glowing figure, this place where God's presence and blessing would flow from as Jesus is the Messiah. But Jesus, in this moment, I think that what he is doing is showing that his plan is not that the presence of God would have to be on the top of a mountain anymore or in the temple anymore, but that if you have the tiniest little bit of faith, God's presence and God's world-transforming power goes with you wherever you go. You don't need to come to church. You don't need to be in any particular place the new covenant made in the blood of Jesus is that his Holy Spirit, God himself, lives in you. And we don't have to climb the mountain anymore. We just get to have faith in Jesus Christ and the mountain goes with us. His presence goes with us. His world-changing power goes with us if we would have that faith in Jesus. That's a good word, amen? That's a good word. God goes with you. And this is where we get to live, the presence of God dwelling in us because of the new covenant in his blood. You know, we don't have to 
little, I guess, bonus. We don't have to look for these mountaintop experiences. I'm very thankful for some of those like amazing moments I've had with God in his presence. Some of them have come at different retreats that I've been on. Some of them have, have come in, yeah, mountain hikes for me too. Some of them have come worshiping here with you. But we don't have to go and try to manufacture that. We don't have to go and try to make that happen in our own strength. In fact, uh, another mountain in Scripture is the Tower of Babel. And as they describe the Tower of Babel in the original Hebrew, uh, there's a connotation to they were building their own mountain out of man-made bricks. And they were trying to make something happen on their own. And what it was was man-made order led to intense chaos. And so in our lives as well, when we try to manipulate and make this happen on our own strength and our own ways, it leads to chaos. But we get to, with simple childlike faith, come to Jesus and know that he is the reason. He has the power. He is the strength. And we see him with us and move through us. And certainly that mountain of his presence goes wherever we go. And we get to just trust him. Do you need the presence of God in your life? Yeah. Do you need to know the will of God? Do you need to know his promises for you? Yeah. We need to know the realities of the kingdom of heaven, that he is restorative, that he is for us, that we are covenanted with him in this partnership that will last forever, and that his mountain goes with us. That mountain of his presence goes with us. From that place then, from that place, you, God's blessing, and life can flow. From you, God's blessing and life can flow into situations in other people's lives around you. And so I want to ask you then, where in your life does God's presence need to infiltrate? Where are you waiting for God's presence, for that mountain? Where are you just waiting to be like, ah, this just this just is awful and hard, and I'm just going to camp out down here, and, and then like two weeks from now, I'm going to climb that mountain and meet with God again. Where are you doing that in your life? God goes with you in every, what you're changing dirty diapers, you can tell what phase of life I'm in. Whether you're sitting at an office desk, no matter what you're doing, God has promised that he will be with you. Jesus promised that he will be with you to the end of the age. And at the end of the age, it says in Revelation chapter 14, that Jesus is going to come at Mount Zion and he's going to establish his forever kingdom from that place at Mount Zion. And it's going to last forever that time. It's going to last forever and it's going to be perfect and he's going to rule in perfection. I'm looking forward to that day, amen? I'm looking forward to that day. And in the meantime, have the faith that Jesus is with you wherever you are. That's what he came to do, establish his kingdom right with you. That's a good word, amen? Take it with you this week. Let me pray over you as we close. Jesus, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that your word is so vast and spans millennia, and yet it just ties together. It's because you're God. None of us could come up with this. You are God and you are good. 
Jesus, I pray that we would know in the depths of our hearts that you are with us and that we would have the faith to see you do amazing things through your people because you are with us, God's holy presence. Jesus, give us that faith to see. Let us run there in our hearts immediately when we are prone to think we have to wait, when we're prone to think that you're far off and distant. You're not. You're not. If we would call upon your name. Thank you, Jesus. I just I pray this week, I pray a blessing over, over our congregation here at Pine Ridge. Lord, that we would see your kingdom come on earth, your will be done as it is in heaven here this week because we have faith. We have faith that you are with us and that you are moving things, that you are making a difference here. And we also pray that same prayer and say, God, may your kingdom come in fullness. Your will be done on earth in fullness as it is in heaven. So we say, come again, Lord Jesus. Come again, and we look forward to that great and glorious day when you established your throne in Mount Zion, and we all get to worship you and travel to see you, and we see relationships restored, and we'll be there forever because we love you. We thank you so much, Jesus. Jesus, I pray that you would send us out in the power that you give, in the love and the kindness that you give, full of the fruit of the Spirit, pouring out of us, Thank you, Jesus, that it's all because of you, all because of you. We love you and we praise you. Amen.